Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care Disability Competent Care webinar series. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on March 8, 2017. This webinar is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to ensuring beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes a full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care. In this podcast, Rachel Stockham, Senior Vice President for the Care Management Independence Care System of New York, explores the provision of care coordination across an interdisciplinary team. So I'm going to start off by talking about uh, the team itself and how do we use a team to provide care coordination. Um, I think over the years at ICS, we realized um, we went through different models and ultimately came back to a team model because we realized um, that a participant, we call them members, so forgive me if I keep saying members, um, really requires different skill sets throughout the trajectory of their um, membership here. So we it, we really found it beneficial for teams to come together, and um, that our teams here are comprised of nurses and social workers that have various backgrounds and specialties. Um, we also see a need for primary care to be integrated in those teams. Um, and that those team members really have to understand how to meet the needs of those with disabilities. Um, and really that's understanding um, both what their ta- tailored needs are required in regards to things such as mobility vice- devices, um, what typical barriers are um, that they face, and then the resources that we can provide to address them. In addition, we, we Um, rely on other team members uh, with other skill sets based on the members' needs. So if we're working with someone that is no longer competent, we might have um, a guardian that's involved and is really working with us to to bring the care plan to life. So it's really looking at the member and the population you serve to determine the need of the team members and what their skill sets. So Whenever we talk about care coordination, and this will be a a trend throughout my presentation, it really should be based on what the participants' goals and preferences are. Um, If we're not keeping that at the center of what we do in our work together, the likelihood of us being successful is very low. However, if if that is at the forefront and, and is taken into consideration in all of our decisions, Uh, we tend to be much more successful. So when we talk about um, the key elements of care coordination, so it's the next slide, we, at the forefront and from the beginning, what we are working to do is to develop and maintain trust with that participant. 
Um, it's really hard to move forward if that is not present. And so we begin um, by, by really understanding, as I said before, what is important to them, how much do they feel like they are um, capable of participating in their health, um, and what's their willingness to. And often when we are assessing that, a lot of stories have come out um, how the participants' past history is affecting their current healthcare decisions and their belief in themselves or in the healthcare team. So really asking about where they've been successful in managing their health or where they have hit barriers is important um, and really will help you when you move forward. When you are setting up communication, again, in a relationship, it's like any relationship, communication is key, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but understanding who their support team is and including them if they want them to be included, again, is critical. I think um, sometimes HIPAA has done us a disservice where we restrict so much information, but in reality, if the, if the participant wants us to include um, their family and loved one in this discussion, then we should, we, we, we need to do it. Um, the support team, if you include their support team, again, you're going to be more likely to be successful. So when we talk about conversations, often in healthcare, we're doing that without the participant. And um, that, that can, it becomes not as efficient because in our health, in our teams, for instance, we'll, We'll talk about what's going on with someone and we'll try to problem solve and we'll put together a plan and then we present it to the participant and they say, no, that's not going to work for me. Um, so as much as we can, and it's, it's changing our, our method, and I know that can be quite awkward and disruptive to our current processes, but if we can include the participant in those discussions, it can be, it can save us a lot of time. Um, so. So figuring that out, including the participant when we can, and making sure that we have those key um, arrangements set up so that they are receiving the services they need is really important. So on the next slide, it's for people who prefer a visual. This is a way to think about um, the care that we're providing and the team members, and always at the center is the member. Um, we start with the participant, and then we build the support around them that they need. Um, this should be fluid and responsive, and we should take the participant's capacity into consideration um, and then build, build the support. So if that participant is able to lead their own care, they might not need a social worker. Um, so really looking at where their, their skills and their willingness is and then and bringing the team around them. So some guidelines for the IDT uh, to consider is really making sure, as I said before, that those providers have um, the training and the ability to um, provide quality care to people with physical disabilities. That is, it's not a natural evolution, and as a healthcare provider, it certainly wasn't something I learned in school. Um, we all start somewhere and we have to build our expertise and I have learned so much from working and ask, with people with physical disabilities and asking them um, about what they need and then understanding, as I said before, the barriers to their care, um, the risk of their condition, the risk of immobility, um, and how to meet them and how to reduce those risks or, um, or totally obliterate them. 
Um, when you're talking about a team, you know, I always use the example of being on a sports team. I was on a, um, I played soccer when I was in my youth and we practiced before the season started. We came together and we practiced and so we could get used to working together. Um, and then throughout the season, we would practice every day during the week and have like, have about a, one game. Um, and that was really so that we could get to know each other's strengths, who's playing, what's the position, when should I pass it to someone. And the same is true here in creating an interdisciplinary team. We need to have clear roles and responsibilities. We need to know who we're passing it to and what they're going to do with it. Um, and we also need someone to lead that so that there is someone who's taking overall responsibility for the care plan and making sure that we're, we're, sick, we're on the road to success. Um, that lead role may change as the person changes um, and goals are reached and we might move on to something else where the person who is currently the lead doesn't have the right skill set or the, you know, to meet what the, what the participant wants. So to make it, to assure that we have some flexibility in that. Um, in addition, skill set's important, but the other thing is that the person has a relationship. When we go back again to talking about trusting someone, and there are certain many, there are certain times, particularly when people are vulnerable, that having that relationship, saying, "Okay, this is good. Chris is here. I know Chris is going to watch out for me," and that can mean a lot. Um, okay. I apologize, I just um, somehow got kicked off from the presentation, but I have my slides in front of me, so I'm going to keep going. Um, as it pulls up, we're going to move to IDT communication. Um, so we're talking, we talked about the what of the team, and now we're going to move to the how. How do, um, how do we work together? And that is really, it begins and ends with communication. So when we're talking about communicating with the participant, um, again, starting by, by developing that trusting relationship, really how you do that is by listening. Um, I think we often will rush to, you know, particularly as healthcare providers, I, I call it fixitis in my, um, with my colleagues because we have such a desire to help people and to try to fix the problem that we sometimes rush to do it before we truly understand what's going on. Um, so really understanding what the participant needs from us, um, including if they're refusing something. If someone says, I don't want that, or they're not showing up, or they are non-adherent, diving into that with them and telling, asking them to tell us why they're not, they don't want to move forward to that. Um, I think asking what people value, understanding what people value and what they want for themselves and moving from that um, model of what's the matter to what matters to you. Um, also, making sure that we're, we know what they understand because, you know, our healthcare system is very complex. Sometimes people's conditions are very complex. At ICS, we, on average, our, our members have 11 diagnoses. They are on 10 medications, and they require eight hours of care a day to help them to remain in the community. That is, that's a lot. So what do they understand about what's going on with their health? Do they understand their disability and what their functional capacity is? Are we maximizing it? Um, 
and some, or is there something we might have to have a hard conversation? So for instance, we have people with neurologic, progressive neurologic illnesses, such as multiple sclerosis or ALS, um, and when you talk about what they're, what's most important to them, sometimes they will say, I want to walk again. Um, and unfortunately, today, we, we don't have the ability to do that when someone's disease has progressed to the point where they lose that. So you might need to educate them. But before you do, it's often good to say, may I offer you some education or my, tell you from my view what we can offer you, um, and then to have a discussion and to explore what they want, um, and to be very specific about what we can offer um, and how we can help them. So in that scenario, for instance, one of the conversations that I often have is, unfortunately, is saying that unfortunately we cannot offer help them walk again, um, but we can help them get where would they go if they could walk, um, and, may, and often we can, we can be successful there. So within the IDT, again, communication is is critical. We, um, I always, <laughs> I, I have a theme of of telling people let's set all of this stuff up before a crisis occurs because then everyone's panicking and we don't know who to call and how to get them. So when you are setting up the team to to set up a protocol, how do you want to communicate? Sometimes people don't like the phone anymore. They prefer secure texting or email. Um, so knowing that, setting it up, sharing everyone's information. Um, because the other thing about an IDT is that you have to be responsive uh, when it matters. So saying when it matters and when it doesn't, right? If something's critical, I will get back within X amount of time. If it is the standard, I, I will get back to you within a day or two or whatever that is so that people can set realistic expectations of, of one another. Um, again, setting a lead is important. Who is taking the role in this? Um, the, other, the other thing is making sure that you know who the member considers on their team. So we might at ICS say, this is who is going to be on the team for Chris, but sometimes Chris has an idea about who's on his team, and he has other healthcare providers that we're not communicating with and something, you know, the likelihood of something going wrong because we're all off on different paths is high. So I... You know, it's kind of like I said, when you're, when you're doing a medication reconciliation, you're asking people what are the medications you're on. I also want to hear about vitamins or anything else. It's the same thing. Tell me everyone who you reach out to on your, on your healthcare team if you have a problem and making sure that we know all of those people and that we reach out to those people. Um, when we're also talking about a team, you know, as I said before, like practicing, a team needs to meet on a regular basis. And I know everyone is incredibly busy, but making sure that we're sharing, are, are there any changes? How are we doing? Are we meeting our goals um, for that participant? How is the participant feeling about this experience and that we're checking in on a regular basis? Um, we meet every two weeks here at Teams. I will tell you, when we first did a case presentation, it lasted about 45 minutes because people will, were per, per participant. Um, because people were taking, you know, a while to explain themselves, and now that they've been working together for years, the cases can be discussed within five minutes um, because they check in with each other often outside of team meetings too. So when we moved to, we've created this um, this beautiful uh, individualized care plan, and we're ready to 
to implement it. Um, now, this is when the rubber hits the road. So it begins once it's completed. We've developed it. If you can move to the next slide, you know, we want to see how it, it's going. Um, it needs to be, as I said, we need to review it on a regular basis. Um, when we set up that plan, we're often doing that assuming that what's currently in the participant's life is going to remain the same. So, for instance, their caregiver. Their caregiver is going to be there to assist them to get to appointments or to make sure, remind them to take their medications. Um, and unfortunately, unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. So, um, making, making a point of checking in, but also realizing who are those key people uh, or strategies that are going to need to happen, and then checking in to see how are they doing. Um, how's the caregiver doing? Are they are the care partner doing? Are are they able to fulfill their role? So that's really important. Um, and then making sure. I mean, we live in a in a highly technological world now, so setting alerts can really help. Um, using electronic medical records could certainly assist if everyone's working off the same one. So. Um, alerting people to changes is important so that everyone's on the same page and is up to date with what's going on. I know that resources I don't, I, I'm, I'm, are really hard and that people are trying to utilize um, resources where they're needed. And so when we're allocating care management uh, to meet the participants' needs, it's really important to think about um, what's going on what does the participant need, and who's the right person to do it. Um, the critical thing is to determine the member's ability to self-direct and lead their own care. When we first started this, uh, we started a stratification model. We did it by diagnosis. So we said, okay, well, everyone who's a quadriplegic is at high risk. We should have um, high contact with those people um, who have that condition. And then we learned that there are quadriplegics that are very self-directive, that are very knowledgeable about their health and condition and know what to do if anything goes awry um, and who to call and that they don't actually need us. So really seeing where the, the member, where the participant is and what they can offer. Um, and then setting out, okay, well, here are these, you know, critical points. Let's, this is when we need to touch base. And then every time you're moving forward, you know You've set up that plan, that emergency plan, and also the check-in plan. When are, you going to, when are you going to circle back to see if you're becoming successful? Um, and then can you set those alerts uh, so that you remember? So that's from the, at the individual level. The other thing to think about from the plan level and from management's perspective is the staff time. And do they have the ability? So here's what the member needs. Can the staff meet those needs? And that we're continuously... Um, checking in on the staff to see what is actually doable um, and can we shift resources if needed because if it's not manageable, um, it, it's likely not to be successful. Um, when we talk about tailoring services, so we have that individualized care plan and we want it to meet the members' needs and we know that one plan does not um, fit an individual, so we have to tailor it. So when we talk about tailoring it, you know, often in, in plans we are looking at what services we can provide. And so those services really need to be tailored to meet that individual's needs. Um, 
so that assessment, right, where, where is someone, where, where are they in regards to their health, their health goals, their functional capacity, their risks, and how can we intervene and offer our support? Um, we have found that the more flexible we can be, um, the more likely we are to meet the members' needs. Um, I know that can be very challenging, especially for healthcare plans that have existing algorithms. Um, and to look at that to see, and we have like, can we allow for some individualization or customization um, from our benefit package? So, and when we look at those traditional defined benefits, I think, um, you know, for instance, I said, um, as I previously said, um, our members receive about on average eight hours of care a day. Um, we, it is a required service, personal care, an aid, a home health aid that we're providing that. Um, but sometimes there are barriers to doing that. So, for instance, if someone has bed bugs, um, having an aid come into the home is really putting the aid at risk. So, even though extermination is not in our in our covered package benefit, is there can we arrange for that to come? Or sometimes we have to pay for it in order to stabilize the person's services. Um, and you know we we need to look at those social determinants of health and well-being that are impacting our um, participants. So, um, and I know consistency is important. So, looking at something, you know, if setting it up for the step that you say, if you have an a an idea of a way of meeting a member's um, or a participant's needs, that's not in our. Um, standard benefit package, then this is our protocol. You reach out to your team leader and then the team leader knows where to go so that that protocol is set up to allow for it. When we talk about putting this all together and where to keep it, that often is the, the individualized care plan is kept in the health record. Um, and really, ideally, that's where you have a comprehensive um, composition of the assessment, the care plan, what the members' medications are, what their services they're receiving, um, and what those ongoing, ongoing contacts with the participant or the IDT, um, what's going on with them. So ideally, I know it's not always possible, but if there is a, um, a centralized health record, that's, that's, that is where we want to go. Um, because you want the IDT, the health record really plays a role in care management for the IDT to see what's going on. Um, what are we doing for that person? Are they calling? Why are they calling us? What's going on? And if there is a change, again, that those alerts are, are given out, that, that they're sent to the IDT. Um, we also know that when the care team meets, things change in between. So if that health record is there, it can tell the team members what's going on when they check in. Um, I know that there are, are um, participant portals that are available. Um, we don't have this currently. We're hoping to do it. So right now we're reviewing this at least monthly uh, with the member when we call outside of responding to any um, needs. We're saying let's sit down and go over what we talked about we wanted to achieve in this care planning period. So that's a way, you know, if that's helpful to go around and then to get back to the team members um, by your agreed method of communication to let them know how it's going. 
When we talk about quality control within the electronic health record, um, again, that's a great tool to use. It will tell us, are people going in? Are they using the ER? Are they being admitted? Why are they being admitted? At ICS, um, about 60% of our hospital admissions are potentially avoidable right now, um, which I know, you know, makes me a little sad, but also um, gives me hope that we can continue to impact it um, because they're going in for things like urosepsis. So they had an infection that spread um, or a, a wound that's deteriorating. So what are things that we can do? But the record, it's really a great way to see what's going on with that individual, but also at the population level um, to identify what are the trends and do we need to develop any additional protocols um, to meet them. So always trying to reduce those health disparities and keep people as healthy as possible in living their lives. So hospitalization, I think, is a, um, a great intro where we talk about critical areas for care coordination. Um, where, where are parts when we think about people with physical disabilities that we really want to make sure we address? Um, care transitions is certainly one of them. Uh, it's, you know, transition is typically referred to as when you move from one setting to another. It's usually a hospital or a nursing home. Um, but when you talk about people with disabilities, it can be, have a broader scope. Um, so, for instance, at ICS, um, we have a pretty significant amount, I think about 10 to 20 percent, no, about 10 percent of our membership that have a history of um, homelessness because of various issues of inaccessibility um, or, or other er um, reasons that they become a homeless and we work with a, a shelter called Barrier Free Living that's an accessible shelter. And so working with them to see, okay, they're going to have a change in their level of need when they move from the shelter and then back into the community. Um, and what are things that we have to take into consideration? Those periods of time from transitioning, whether it's from hospital to home or from, um, from the shelter to, to back into the community, there is such, they, you know, people with physical disabilities are at an increased risk for poor health outcomes that we really have to look for things um, and, and try to intervene whenever possible. So for instance, if you look at someone who is a quadriplegic and they go in the hospital, their aid um, cannot come with them. It's considered duplication of services. So then the hospital is responsible for meeting their needs. Moving from a one-on-one -on -one setting, right, they had one person caring for them to now um, having to share that with other people that are on the floor can be really scary. And if you're a quadriplegic, you can't push a call bell, um, the typical call bell. So making sure that there are things like a call bell that can be activated by touching your head or rolling to one side is really important. So because of that and because of our desire to manage those transitions, we've really set up a plan for people when this happens and protocols of what we do when we know that these um, critical points in time occur. Um, we, you know, planning ahead whenever possible. So if what happens, what do we do? How do we respond if someone goes in the hospital? Using those protocols checklists can be very helpful. Um, so people make sure that they went through, you know, those critical areas or those interventions and assessed what the member needs. Um, 
we, you know, who's going to take that responsibility of following up? And, you know, we at ICS, we learned that it can be incredibly disruptive, you know, to a, a care manager when all of a sudden, you know, they had planned on doing, um, had their week set up and then a member goes in the hospital and making sure, one, what they go in for and understanding that they're okay and then trying to go in and help um, the participant it can be very challenging. So at ICS, we set up a transition team um, that reach out to the hospital when we know someone's been admitted to triage the situation to see what the level of care is and to go out if needed. Uh, and we found that success. We found that helpful, and um, the members responded positively to it as well. So really making sure both in that transition it's being managed and then following that. And so. For instance, we use the Coleman model and looking, making sure to prevent a readmission that someone um, understands their condition and the flags as well as um, their medication reconciliation and that they have a follow-up appointment, um, making sure that those things are in place so the transition team will follow them uh, upon discharge too to make sure those things are in place for the member, for the participant. Medications is also something we need to look at. Um, many of our, many participants are on multiple medications. As I said, 10 medications, that's a lot to keep track of. Using a health record is important um, for when someone has multiple providers or prescribers involved. Um, the other thing is to always remember, I know um, you, there was a training on primary care, but making sure we're taking that disability into consideration. So for instance, um, if someone has fine motor problems with their fine motor movement, um, it, injecting might be hard, so are there other supports that we can put in place so that they get the needed treatment? Or if someone's on um, a diuretic and they have an unsteady gait, um, they could be at really high risk for falls. Or if someone has to transfer on a diuretic to using a Hoyer to the bathroom, is that really feasible? Or maybe we should need to come up with an alternative plan. I, I will tell you a tip is using a pharmacist. I know um, it's not often done, but I rely on pharmacists. They'll help you come up with a plan and to talk things through and to talk about that individual and what they may need and how we can come up with an alternative solution. Advanced directives is another area to pay attention to. Um, it's when someone has a disability, you might not approach it the same way you would um, approach someone with able-bodied, meaning really thinking about what is currently going on with that person. So when we, we use the five wishes here at ICS, one of those discussed ventilations, we have members that are on a ventilator already. So how can you review that and with someone on a regular basis to say, do you think there will be a time when maybe you wouldn't want to be on a ventilator anymore? In order to do that, you have to have a trusting relationship with a person. It has, it's, in a crisis is not ideal because people feel pressured and you want them to think about it and have time to consider it. Um, and again, it has to be reviewed on a regular basis because things change. I know what I, you know, I might have wanted something at a certain point 20 years ago that I no longer want now. So to really make sure that we're reviewing that on a regular basis. So I think we're going to move to um, a case scenario to go through. 
um, and this is about Camille. Camille is a 35-year-old woman who describes herself as an artist, an advocate, and a pet owner. I like Camille already. Um, her family, she has a support, but unfortunately, they live out of town, but she's able to stay in touch with them. Um, she is on the autistic spectrum. She has some hearing and vision loss, a thyroid disorder, and she's been having recently some problems with waking and difficulty ambulating due to swollen legs and pain. So she went to a long hospitalization. You know, when we were thinking about Camille, I said a long hospitalization, automatically I go to, she's going to need rehab, and that's what the hospital recommended. Um, and Camille did not want any of it. She, her identity is being a cat owner, so she wants to be back with her cat, and she wants her lifestyle is important. She does not want to go into a facility. Um, so what did the team do? So the team, as any good IDT would, respected her choice um, and worked with her to develop an alternative plan, right? So how can we, what did we want for her in the rehab facility and what can we bring into her home? Um, so they brought in home care services and they increased the visits to her PCP so that they were seeing her more often. And they worked with her personal assistants to make sure they knew how to exercise um, so she could keep her weight down and keep the swelling down. And then Camille began to understand. She began to learn what's the connection between waking and her thyroid and taking her medications and her leg swelling. So she became more empowered and was able to self-manage more. Um, and she also was able to get out there. She's an artist and share her talents. Um, she got linked with the paratransit system so that if she needed more assistance, they could um, meet her functional needs. And so uh, Camille is living her life. I, um, so if we're going to just, in conclusion, I'll just say I think, um, you know, care coordination should really be uh, the glue that's bringing everything together. So whatever we should, that glue should take the form of what that participant needs. Um, and it needs to be developed, you know, communication is so critical as is developing a relationship with someone. Um, and it's not, it doesn't have to be a specific person, but a function or a role. What does that person need now and how can we respond to it? Um, and that's really important and that it's a fluid, um, ongoing discussion with the participant.